Michigan Constitution podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to the 14th installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. At this time, we will continue to discuss Article 1, Section 5 of the Michigan Constitution. On the last show, we discussed general restrictions to free speech, and we've established that your freedom of speech may be limited based on time, place, and manner restrictions, But likewise, your speech could also be limited if it bumps up against other constitutional rights like a right to a fair trial. But what about your commercial right to free speech? After all, restaurant billboards are free speech and commercials on TV and radio, well, that's free speech. Look, we accept it as commonplace to observe the expressions of free speech by companies. But what about when that free speech is for an adult bookstore or an adult movie theater? I mean, okay, listen, I'll concede that maybe in the year 2020, the internet has run those sorts of places out of business, but the subject matter is still as relevant today as it was when it was addressed in the 1970s. But first, your spoonful of legalese. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different articles section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. After all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Our first case is the people of Michigan versus Joseph Austin in 1977. Mr. Austin was convicted of promoting pornography based on a City of Detroit ordinance when he was working as a cashier for the Adult News Bookstore. An undercover police officer purchased two magazines from the defendant, went outside and reviewed the contents to ensure it was pornographic in nature, and once that was confirmed, went back into the store to issue an ordinance violation to Mr. Austin. Not that it really matters, but for the sake of your own knowledge, listeners, I can't tell if his conviction of this ordinance was a mere civil infraction, meaning it pay it like a fine uh, that you get when you have a, a speeding ticket, or if the ordinance was a conviction resulting in a misdemeanor. I, I don't know, and quite frankly, it's irrelevant for the sake of this discussion, but I at least wanted to address that question. And it really is irrelevant because the Michigan Court of Appeals overruled and vacated his conviction for the reasons we're about to discuss. 
First, here's how the ordinance reads. It is unlawful for any person to promote pornography if that person knows its content and character. Pornography is any material or performance where the following elements are met. 1. When considered as a whole by the average person applying contemporary community standards of the city of Detroit, it appeals to the purient interest. And 2. It depicts, describes, or represents in a patently offensive way sexual conduct. And 3. It lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Now, I do need to make clear. The United States Supreme Court has held that obscene material is not protected by the First Amendment. However, the Supreme Court of the United States has also directed to the states, like Michigan, that statutes designed to regulate obscene material must be carefully limited. A state offense must be limited to works which... 1. Would an average person applying contemporary community standards... 2 find that it appeals to the purient interest in sex, three, by portraying sexual conduct in a patently offensive way, and four, when taken as a whole, it does not have serious literary, political, or scientific value. Well, now we need to define, either by dictionary or by case law, some of these terms. For example, Webster's Dictionary defines prurient as having or encouraging an excessive interest in sexual matters. Patently offensive are deemed to be ultimate sexual acts, normal or perverted, actual or simulated. That could be self-pleasure, excretory functions, and lewd exhibition of anatomy. The Court of Appeals said that as carefully and specifically as the ordinance was, it is not vague. To the contrary, they believed it was written in such a way as to provide clear and conspicuous notice of the scope of the prohibition to the sellers of sex-related material. Because the ordinance went to such great length and detail to define what quote-unquote sexual conduct looked like, well, there was no violation of the Constitution based on the vagueness standard. But... The Court of Appeals also said what is prurient and patently offensive is better left to a jury to decide. However, that authority is not without some limitations. They make clear that no one will be subject to the prosecution for the sale or exposure of obscene materials unless these materials depict or describe patently offensive hardcore sexual conduct. There we are, back again, at that nebulous, patently offensive language. So, Are you ready for this? Here's how the court addresses it. By not addressing it. They believed the greater importance is the fact that material which is not hardcore, well, it retains its First Amendment right. They said that an evil even greater than an individual's fear of conviction of peddling porn is the maker's fear of self-imposed suppression of protected speech. The court held that statutes which prohibit material which cannot arguably fall within certain limitations must be struck down. So, here's why the Court of Appeals punted the ball, at least in my opinion. That first element we talked about is that the pornography has to be prurient and patently offensive by the average person applying contemporary community standards. 
Although the Michigan Court of Appeals is enforcing the requirements, which really were set by the Supreme Court of the United States, think about the almost impossible standard of creating a city ordinance or a state statute which encapsulates the average person and the contemporary community standards. In a very real sense, you could have something which offends the average person by contemporary community standards in the Dutch stronghold of Kent or Ottawa County, but that same book or movie would not offend the average person in the anything-goes territory of Ann Arbor. Imagine showing an obscene movie in Ann Arbor, and then the next night you are arrested in Holland for showing the exact same movie. This is why pornography is never prosecuted, because equal protection of your freedom of speech could be predicated upon which city you would or would not be in showing that movie. Another case I wanted to highlight is People of the State of Michigan versus Newmeyer, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1979. Here's what's going on. In 1975, Mr. Newmeyer was charged with a misdemeanor for violating a Michigan statute which prohibited possession with intent to show and then actually showing two dirty movies in Pontiac, Michigan. Although the possession charge was dismissed, Mr. Newmeyer was convicted of showing the adult movies. The Michigan Supreme Court starts off right from the beginning by explaining this statute at hand is unconstitutionally vague and overbroad under free speech standards, but is still deemed to be constitutional. How? Because the standards are decided by a jury in determining what is constitutionally obscene. They get to decide whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that work appeals to the prurient interests and that it is patently offensive and lacks serious value. That is saved for a jury to decide. So here's why I discuss this case. That previous case that we just discussed, the People versus Austin, it was decided by the Court of Appeals, but they ultimately punted on making a decision. Remember, I, we, we discussed that. Therefore, the Michigan Supreme Court had to step in, and they effectively took what the skeletal outline was, which was laid out by the Court of Appeals, and they adopted it, they being the Michigan Supreme Court, they adopted it as their own, which is totally fine. It's probably what the Court of Appeals wanted from the Supremes. But now you know, in Michigan, to successfully defend against a criminal charge of smut peddling, you need to have one person on your jury believe, based on contemporary community standards, that your work doesn't appeal to the prurient interests, nor is it patently offensive, because you've convinced just that one person on the jury that your work adds to the rich tapestry of valuable literary, artistic, political, or scientific work to our world. All right, we're going to pivot a little bit. Let's talk about Schultz versus City of Rochester from 1998. I want to talk about business signs in residential neighborhoods and oh my goodness, the things that municipalities feel they need to legislate, right? Because in or around 1996, a woman by the name of Edna Schultz owned a home in Rochester Hills in an area zoned for single family residential use. So in, in a very legal, non-legalese way to say it, it's a woman who lives in a very well-to-do area of Michigan. Rochester Hills is one of the most 
expensive places to live in the state of Michigan. And she lives in a, in a traditional neighborhood, but she's running a home business out of her home. Specifically, she was selling beauty products. So, you know, like Avon calling sort of aspect. And she had attached a large sign to a tree on the front of her lawn to advertise her merchandise and uh, to solicit distributors of those products. Well, Rochester Hills had an ordinance which, amongst other things that we don't really need to get into, it regulated home businesses to some extent. And they did it so long as the business does not cause, uh, quote, the erection or maintenance of any signs. Well, Edna had put up a sign, uh, you know, affixed it to a tree in her front yard. She subsequently was issued a ticket by the city for placing that sign on the tree in violation of the home occupation ordinance. This case is a prime example of whether commercial speech like Ms. Schultz is protected free speech. Because all she wants to do is she wants to promote the fact that she sells beauty products and you can come to her home and you can buy those beauty products from her. Or you could also become a, uh, a distributor if, because that's kind of how those multi-level marketing schemes operate, right? But the Michigan Court of Appeals, in my opinion with this case, did a wonderful job of laying out what the four elements are going to be to help determine whether or not a business is engaging in protected commercial speech. They are as follows. 1. Determine whether defendant's expression is protected by the Michigan Constitution, which can be accomplished if the expression is legal and the content is not misleading. 2. Determine whether the government has a substantial interest in limiting that commercial speech. 3. Determine whether the ordinance directly advances the asserted governmental interest. And finally, 4. Determine whether the total ban on home occupation signs is more extensive than necessary to serve the governmental interest. And then the court walks through each element one by one. First, they note both the city and Ms. Schultz agree her sign is constitutionally protected because selling makeup is legal and the sign is not misleading. So the first element goes in favor of Ms. Schultz. Next, they both agree that the city has a substantial interest in maintaining the nature and the character of residential neighborhoods. So, this point goes in favor of the city government. As such, we're tied one to one. But it's this third element, showing the ordinance directly advances the governmental interest that the court acknowledges is a burden the city must satisfy. Does banning this sort of sign directly advance its interest in maintaining the character, the nature, the aesthetic quality and property values, as well as traffic safety in residential areas? No, said the Court of Appeals. The court believed that banning signs does not prohibit the intended outcome, which is to minimize disruption in the neighborhoods. So maybe said another way, if the intent of the ordinance to prevent the neighborhood from becoming as busy as a mall parking lot at Christmas, well, the prohibition of a sign is not going to stop that. To the contrary, when the city of Rochester Hills tried to defend the prohibition on business yard signs, they did so by pointing out other forms of advertising like radio, television, and newspaper. But those forms of advertising, the court correctly points out, will reach a much larger audience than a simple 
yard sign would, thus resulting in far more people seeing the advertisement and subsequently coming to the neighborhood to shop. The way the city could have addressed their concerns about signs promoting a home business would have been to more narrowly focus their restriction. They could have written the ordinance to limit placement of the sign, or how many signs that person could have in their yard. They could limit the size of the sign, or what colors the signs could be, you know, so as not to be a loud, garish, neon yellow or neon orange or pink color, which is known to to scream at people proverbially. These sorts of restrictions are more reasonable for a person who wants to operate a business from their house when in a clustered residential neighborhood. Look, the court agrees a city council does have an interest in preserving a neighborhood's aesthetic, safety, and character, but a complete prohibition on a sign is not the appropriate method. It is too broad a restriction when a more narrow set of limitations would accomplish the same goal. Therefore, and for those reasons, the court ultimately ruled against the city and their unconstitutional ordinance. Next, the Michigan Attorney General Opinion, 1984. So, since we're currently talking about commercial business signs being placed in a front yard, and as I record this, we're in the thick of the 2020 presidential election, why don't we discuss political candidate yard signs? And, much like fireworks, it amazes me what minor trivialities get some people so worked up. And apparently, yard signs is one of them. Hence, the 1984 Michigan Attorney General opinion regarding ordinances restricting the placement of political campaign signs on private property. Now, just a quick backstory. Because the Michigan Attorney General is the attorney for the state of Michigan, much like you have an attorney who you may call when you need legal assistance, and don't call me, I will not help you, when a state of Michigan elected official has a legal question, so, you know, think like a state senator, a state representative, maybe the governor, the director of a, of a state department like the Department of Treasury, or even the Secretary of State, that elected official can submit a question or questions to the Attorney General about Michigan law, and the Attorney General can provide legal advice back to the elected official. I mean, okay, maybe it's a little bit more involved than that, but we're, we're flying at a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet for all of my podcasts, so you know enough just to get by on this particular attorney general opinion. This is exactly what then-state representative Curtis Hertel did back in 1984 regarding political campaign signs and what restrictions, if any, a municipality may inflict on a yard sign. So let's be clear, folks. So many people were worked up over political yard signs that municipalities felt the need to address the complaints by passing ordinances. And, and apparently, there were so many ordinances placing restrictions on yard signs that it became necessary for a state representative to reach out to our Attorney General of Michigan to find out what restrictions can and cannot be placed on helpless yard signs. Wondering what that advice was? Let's discuss. First, may a limit be placed upon the erection of political signs to a specified number of days prior to an election? No. Under Michigan's Constitution, Article 1, Section 5, political campaign signs are a form of protected free speech. It is unreasonable to limit the placement of a yard sign to a specific number of days 
when you're dealing with someone's private property. How a person wishes to communicate their support for a candidate on their private property is not the business of any municipality. So no, you can't tell a homeowner they may only display a yard sign for a certain number of days prior to an election. Second, may a requirement be made that political signs be taken down within a specified number of days after an election? Yes, but... The requirement to remove the signs may not be imposed until 10 days after the election. This, the Attorney General believed, was a reasonable amount of time to give a candidate the ability to go pick up their yard signs from around the area. The Attorney General observed that after an election, the efficacy of the yard signs is nil, and any heated debate over who was the appropriate or best candidate Well, that was resolved by the vote of the electors. Therefore, the need to become acquainted with the candidates has concluded and our freedom of speech protection is diminished until the next election. At that point, all the signs are welcome to be put back up. But once the election is over, the relevancy of a campaign sign has gone away. And as such, the public interest in safety at that point has presumably risen to the level that such considerations outweigh our free speech encroachments. Third, may the municipality require that a bond be posted or insurance procured before a municipality can allow the placement of political signs on private, commercial, or industrial property? No. An ordinance, the Attorney General believes, that requires the posting of a bond or obtaining insurance before posting a campaign sign on private property is unnecessarily burdensome and places a chilling effect on the constitutionally protected right of political expression. Fourth, can a municipality require a candidate to attend a specific meeting run by the municipality concerning the placement of yard signs on private property? No. Compulsory attendance at special meetings concerning political campaign signs is the type of burden our free speech protections are designed to prevent. A candidate, said the Attorney General, may not be required to attend meetings which are intended to teach them legal requirements they're already obligated to know. If the municipality wanted to be helpful and decided to put on a voluntary meeting that they think would be helpful to the candidate, that's perfectly acceptable. But to require them to attend simply to preach at them how they are to use their yard signs on private property, that is an infringement on freedom of speech. Fifth, can a candidate be required to list addresses where their yard signs will be located? No. Any requirement for the listing of the addresses where campaign signs will be placed, while imposing no restriction on any other sort of sign except for campaign signs, that is a complete violation of equal protection. This is because you're treating candidates entirely different from other individuals, like, say, our cosmetic worker from home, the the woman in the last case who may not have signs for non-campaign-related reasons. So if you're going to place this kind of uh, restriction on on yard signs and, and requiring to list addresses where those yard signs will be located, it's going to have to be done to all yard signs, not simply or only or exclusively campaign yard signs. Sixth, may a limitation be placed on the size of campaign signs upon private property 
whether residential, commercial, or industrial? Yes, but that restriction on the size of the campaign sign had best be imposed on all signs generally, so as not to treat a campaign sign any differently than you might treat a home business sign or a for sale sign or any other sign that may be placed in on private property. Restrictions either apply to everybody or nobody. You can't treat campaign signs differently. But one caveat. The Attorney General did point out if you do have a sign restriction in place, regardless whether it's political in nature or otherwise, you cannot make the limitation of the campaign sign so small that a person traveling by on foot or in a vehicle can't read and understand what is the content that's being placed on that sign. So maybe said more clearly, you can't restrict any signs, but particularly campaign signs, to be so small that the message is incapable of being read by a passerby. Lastly, can a municipality require written permission from the homeowner to allow the campaign sign on their property and make the homeowner file that permission with the local government? Unequivocally, no. All the Attorney General had to say on this crazy law was that the requirement is impermissibly burdensome because it results in unfair and discriminatory treatment of political speech by violating the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution. Think about it this way. Imagine that a state senator's district, which in southeast Michigan could include pieces of Wayne County, Oakland County, and Macomb County. Imagine if that requirement was placed on the residents of Oakland County. Well, now the state senator candidate has to make sure that he gets the homeowner to submit her permission to a yard sign in her yard but the homeowners in Wayne and Macomb County, well, they don't have to jump through those hoops. So if a Wayne County resident wants the same candidate's yard sign, that homeowner merely takes and places the sign in their yard. But that's not the only action that the Oakland County homeowner has to take. They first have to file a piece of paper with their county clerk's office giving permission. Only then can she take the same state senate candidate's yard sign and place it in her yard. See how two people in the exact same senate district could be treated differently? Yeah, that's not allowed. Next up, the 1976 Advisory Opinion on the Constitutionality of the Public Act 227 of 1975. Because we're on a subject of freedom of speech and campaigns, I think a case well worth discussing is this uh, advisory opinion on the constitutionality of, of, of an act from 1975. Now, before I go any further, I should let you know that our state constitution has a pretty cool clause included in it that the United States Constitution does not contain. And that provision is an advisory opinion authority of the Michigan Supreme Court. If asked by the Michigan legislature, after a bill has been enacted into law, the Michigan legislature can ask the Michigan Supreme Court to review the law for constitutionality. This is unique because on the federal level, before the United States Supreme Court can take a case, there has to be someone, quote unquote, injured by a law before they will determine if the law is constitutional or not. It should be noted that this is merely an opinion just to be clear, and it holds no precedential binding requirement of the Michigan Supreme Court or any of its lower courts. 
But here in Michigan, at the discretion of our state Supreme Court, they can review an act and with no lawsuit or, or no injured party, they can rule that the act or any portion of the act is unconstitutional. They don't do it often, but they do have the authority to do it. The value of their constitutional review before any actual litigation is the savings both in time and money to get a case from the trial court all the way up to the Michigan Supreme Court. And that's exactly what happened in 1976 when they reviewed portions of the Michigan Campaign Finance Act. Now, keep in mind what's going on here in 1975-1976 when this is all taking place, the, the act being passed, the, the Michigan Supreme Court reviewing the constitutionality of the act. President Richard Nixon had only just resigned from the presidency in August of 74 due to Watergate. The ripple effect of that scandal and the impeachment proceedings and the campaign finance reform that was sweeping the nation, well, all these laws were passed cracking down on who and how much campaign money could be donated and spent by, or at least on behalf of, politicians. The Supreme Court of the United States made a landmark ruling about this topic at the federal level for federal candidates in the case of Buckley versus Vallejo. So based on that federal Supreme Court guidance, Michigan decided they too wanted to implement campaign finance laws in our state. But there were provisions of the Campaign Finance Act which raised concerns that maybe the Michigan legislature had overstepped in some of the uh, re restrictions that they're allowed to, to put into the act, thus violating the Michigan Constitution. So the Michigan Supreme Court was asked to weigh in on certain provisions. Let's talk about those provisions and discuss why some were and were not considered constitutional. The first section at issue contained the following language. Any person filing or aware of the filing of a sworn complaint according to the provisions within this act shall not publicize any information relative to the sworn complaint. A violation of this section shall be subject to penalty. So really, at the heart of this prohibition is whether the news media may publish information regarding complaints of campaign violations. And the Michigan Supreme Court advised it was quite likely unconstitutional. The justices opined that formal complaints alleging violations of the act may be filed with the commission. But this improperly impinges upon Article 1, Section 5's protection of both freedom of speech and freedom of press. They noted it not only prohibits the media's publication, but also private communication between two or more people. By the terms used within this provision, it prohibits communication of information even after the information has been made public by the commission or the person under the investigation authorizes the revelation of the information. The court also noted the practical implications of this problem. If public discussion brought about because of the media highlighting the alleged violation, if that were banned until after the commission concluded its proceedings, it's very possible that violation of the act would not come to the attention of the public until after the election. Further, if the commission concluded that no violations had occurred, it is not clear when, if ever, the person bringing the complaint could make his case before the public. Finally, when electing persons to serve in positions of public trust, 
It is fundamental to our system of government that the voters be provided with the information necessary to make informed choice, our Michigan Supreme Court said. So this prohibition on publicizing a campaign finance violation restricts both the freedom of speech and the media, thus impeding the flow of vital information to all voters. And that's exactly the opposite of what Article 1, Section 5 looks to achieve. The next basket of issues that the Michigan Supreme Court had to deal with in their advisory opinion related to the limits placed on expenditures in the support or opposition of a candidate, as well as a limit on the contributions made to support or oppose a candidate. So how much money can be donated to a candidate and how much money can be spent on behalf of a candidate? First, they tackled the limitation on spending for a candidate because the Supremes noted, our Article 1, Section 5 of the Michigan Constitution is so similar to the allowances provided in the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, our Supreme Court relied heavily on the Buckley versus Vallejo case ruling by the United States Supreme Court. Our state Supreme Court justices agreed that discussion of public issues and debate on the qualifications of candidates are essential to the operation of the system of government established by our state constitution. The freedom of speech and of the media affords the broadest protection to such political expression in order to assure that there is an unfettered exchange of ideas for bringing about political and social changes desired by our Michigan residents, or we as Michigan residents. More so, there is practically universal agreement that the major purpose of these freedoms by both us, the residents of Michigan, as well as to the media, is to protect a free discussion of governmental affairs, and that includes the discussion of candidates. But our Michigan Supreme Court addressed it head-on by adopting the United States Supreme Court's philosophy that the limitations of expenditures on behalf of a candidate was a violation of freedom of speech. They opined any restriction on the amount of money a person can spend on political communication during a campaign automatically reduces the quality of expression shared because it restricts the number of issues discussed along with the depth of the issues explored. These modes of communication, so think about, you know, the size of the audience or the number of issues discussed, that sort of thing. That's very, very effective in promoting political speech. But remember, reaching that size of audience or, or bringing up that number of issues to be discussed, it's very expensive. So what's the Michigan Supreme Court really saying? They're saying that airing TV commercials or radio ads or the placement of newspaper ads, those all constitute freedom of political speech. If you very much support or very much oppose a candidate, you have the right of political freedom of speech to communicate your support or opposition of that candidate. There are some inexpensive ways of doing it, you know, like door to door and making phone calls or walking in a parade for the candidate. But there are also financial ways that you can support a candidate, like airing a TV ad encouraging your community to vote for that candidate. Same holds true for radio and newspaper ads. But those cost a lot more money than making phone calls or going door to door 
costs. So when you're limited in how much you can spend supporting your candidate of choice, you're inherently limiting the person's freedom of speech because political speech falls within the understanding of our Michigan Constitution's freedom of speech protection. Said basically, political speech equals freedom of speech. That's the expenditure side of campaigning. What about the contribution side? The Michigan Supreme Court held that limitations on contributions to a candidate, that can be limited. Now, real quick, just to be clear, a candidate can contribute however much of his or her own personal wealth he or she wishes to contribute to their campaign because the candidate is using their own money for their own campaign. So what we're really talking about here is the ability of outside individuals contributing to a candidate. If you yourself are not a candidate for office, then you are limited on how much you can contribute to a candidate whom you support for office. The Michigan Supreme Court did not believe contribution limits violated political speech. They thought this was only a marginal restriction upon political speech because a contribution to a candidate is a general expression of support for that candidate. It's not a communication expressing underlying bases of support. Maybe said another way. How about this? The quantity of communication by the contributor does not increase perceptibly with the size of his contribution, since the expression rests solely on that undifferentiated symbolic act of contributing. Look, just because you give $1,000 to a candidate doesn't mean that you support the candidate 10 times more than the guy who donates 100 bucks. That $100 contributor likely really, really supports the candidate just as much as and possibly even more so than that $1,000 contributor. So the court is saying a donation is a donation regardless of how much the check is written out for. It merely means the $1,000 contributor probably has more disposable income than the $100 contributor. And honestly, if you've ever been involved in a campaign, you know that money is great, but volunteers are essential. A one-and-done contributor of $1,000 gives your campaign the ability to buy handouts and balloons and stickers and the like. But if you have no volunteers to hand out the flyers or wear the stickers, etc., etc., well, the money then is only so useful. A person who writes a $100 check but then also goes door-to-door and or makes phone calls for a candidate is just as valuable and maybe even more valuable than that one-and-done contributor. So, the Michigan Supremes believed a limitation on the amount of money a person may give to a candidate involves little direct restraint on political communication because it permits the symbolic expression of support. And what is that symbolic freedom of speech expression? The actual writing of the check. This is not an infringement upon the contributor's freedom to discuss candidates and the issues. Because our state Supreme Court found that potential for abuse inherent in the contribution of large sums of money could be avoided with a limit on contributions, this limitation on our political freedom of speech is outweighed by the good that comes from avoiding the potential abuse, which comes from large contributions. Before I move on from this topic, 
I do want to touch upon why unlimited contributions to a candidate to his own campaign is allowed. The reason why a wealthy candidate can contribute an unlimited amount of his own money to his political campaign, our Supreme Michigan Supreme Court said, is because there is no fear of potential abuse. Look, uh, when a when a person gives money to a candidate, there's the possible appearance there could be abuse through a quid pro quo, right? I give you money as a candidate, and if you become an elected official, you now, quote unquote, owe me because of my financial support. See, see how that quid pro quo would work? But if that candidate contributes to his own campaign, he owes no one. He donated to himself. This the court believes is why unlimited contribution to one's own campaign is acceptable because it does not warrant the concern of potential abuses in office as a quote unquote uh repay that political donation let's say right whether you believe this to be true or not of course is a political philosophy you dear listener get to make on your own uh, to decide now next was the disclosure requirements is it constitutional to require a candidate to disclose from whom and how much the candidate has received related to financial support? Yeah, yeah, that's okay, the Michigan Supreme Court held. Again, they were relying on Buckley versus Vallejo, where the court found that the government does have a valid interest in requiring candidates to tell the public who has supported them for office. The public deserves to know the sources of a candidate's funding and how the candidate is spending it. The public deserves the openness that comes from seeing who has contributed to that candidate, if for no other reason than avoiding the appearance of corruption. And how else does the public know if campaign contribution limits are being respected, if not for the ability to review the disclosure statements made by the campaign? These reasons are, in the court's opinion, greater than the privacy a candidate may expect in financing of his campaign. The next topic within the Michigan Supreme Court's advisory opinion is a subject that is still raging today, corporate contributions. The case of the Federal Election Commission versus Citizens United in 2010 still rankles the dander of half the population for reasons I'm not going to get into here in this podcast. But suffice it to say, our advisory opinion from 1976 is as relevant in 2020 as it was 44 years ago. So what's going on here in Michigan under the freedom of speech provisions of Article 1, Section 5, you ask? It was the opinion of the justices of the Michigan Supreme Court that corporate contributions or expenditures for the purpose of influencing the election of candidates may be constitutionally prohibited in order to preserve the integrity of the electoral process. However, they view the prohibition of corporate contributions or expenditures for the purpose of influencing ballot questions as an unconstitutional abridgment of freedom of speech and press. So, wait, let's, how, why, right? The Michigan Supreme Court believed that there was a significant distinction between corporate contributions or expenditures made to a candidate versus corporate contributions and expenditures to a ballot proposal. And what's that distinction, you ask? Well, with candidates, you're voting for that person. You're voting for that person and their beliefs, what, what they stand for. It's, it's, it's a human. 
But with a ballot proposal, you're voting on ideas, on, on concepts. Remember, spending money on communicating views and opinions will always be constitutionally protected. The best form of government is always one where you have the freedom to speak about ideas and opinions which impact policies. We want to ensure the unfettered exchange of ideas for bringing about political social changes. Whether it's a person or a corporation, we as a society have a profound national commitment to the principles that debate on public issues should not be inhibited. But instead, the concept of debating public issues should always be robust and wide open. The right of the public to be informed is a paramount consideration in seeking to preserve the free exchange of ideas in the marketplace. Corporations can always fundraise and spend money freely for the advancement of ideas like ballot proposals. Because what they're buying is the increase of discussion related to those ideas. Debate on ideas is the highest form of our freedom of speech. We want to encourage people to discuss and debate the merits of ideas. But limitations on contributions to political people, on the other hand, well, that can be limited because we want to minimize the possibility of pay-for-play donations. And lastly, lobbyist disclosure requirements. The court had to review requirements placed upon lobbyists who engage elected officials for the purposes of ensuring transparency. So what this really means is anytime a lobbyist spends money on uh, something related to an elected official, they have to report that. They have to report that spending. How much did they spend? How did they spend it, right? And the Michigan Supreme Court did not find that there was any sort of problem to having transparency requirements. To the contrary, that's that's really good. We want transparency to be very clear in our political process. The Supremes found that regulations involving direct communication with elected officials in both the legislature as well as the governor's office does not violate a constitutional right to free speech. The Supreme Court believed that the right of the public to know the source of monies being spent to influence governmental officials was not only appropriate, but must apply equally to the lobbyists just like it does to the candidates. And for that reason, the Michigan Supreme Court held that regulating the lobbying industry was constitutionally permissive. All right, that's going to do it for this podcast. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at TonySnyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening. <laughs>